For those of you uh, who... For those of you who don't know me, my name's uh, Ben. I'm one of the leaders here at Grace Church. And we're, you've uh, joined us on week three of a series we're going to do looking through um, Exodus. Now, I've been, uh, the first two weeks uh, were uh, done by uh, Mike and Scott, which were uh, fantastic. If you want to catch up on those, uh, you can get them on the website. Um, but I've been like dying to get into Exodus. I'm so excited to actually do my first Exodus sermon uh, today after having wanted to do Exodus and to teach Exodus for a very, very long time. Uh, as lots of people have said um, before, Exodus may well be the single story that has been told most in the history of all humanity. Um, like that's how big the Exodus story is. Um, it's been told for millennia um, by uh, Jewish people um, and by Christians, uh, and it is the great uh, story of God's rescue of his people. Uh, and and it, it amazingly for us as Christians prepares um, the ground for us to celebrate and rejoice in that great victory that God won uh, when he himself came to rescue us in the person of Jesus. So it's so exciting uh, to be able to look at this story with you. Um, but before I get into Exodus, I want to just take a few minutes to talk to you um, about another great story that has been told for a long time, and that is the story of Hercules. Now, uh, let's be honest about this. When I say I want to talk about the story of Hercules, what I mean is I want to talk about the Disney film Hercules, because that is the entirety of my knowledge of the story of Hercules, and it's also an absolutely great film, um, which I have watched, watched many, many times. Um, now, the film begins with, with the kind of background to the story. You know, the kind of, we are the muses bit. You know, that bit. And, and they, they kind of, I, I was toyed with the idea of singing it and thought, I just can't pull that off. So let's, let's, not, let's not do that. I won't put you through that. Um, but, you know, that bit where, where they tell the story of, of the, the world and what's going on. And the story is a bit like this. There's this god who's generally like quite a good guy called Zeus. And, and he is... He, he rules over everything, but he, there's, there's his brother, Hades, and he is god of the underworld, and he has an evil plan to shake things up. Like, that, that's what he's got. He's got this evil plan, and this plan is to overthrow Zeus and to take control of uh, the world, the cosmos, whatever they, wherever they live, um, for themselves. That, that's his plan, his great plan. But there's a problem to this plan. The problem is... This baby that's born, Hercules, he's a problem. Hades gets told that this, this child can overthrow him, can, can, can foil his great plan. And so, so Hades thinks, well, I know how to sort this problem out. I just need to kill Hercules. So he goes out to kill Hercules, to, to get Hercules killed. Uh, and he gets him uh, to kind of drink this potion or something or whatever it is. And, and he does, but he doesn't quite finish the potion. So he doesn't kill him. It just robs him of basically all his powers. So he has a tiny bit of power left, but he's no longer a god. He's no longer immortal. Uh, and, and he is banished away from the gods to, to live on earth. So suddenly you've got this situation where Hades is there planning to overthrow Zeus. Hercules... It is, is there, but he doesn't look in any kind of position to do what he's meant to do. He's lost his powers. He's banished from the other gods. He, he's, he's, a, he's not in a position to defeat Hades and save Zeus. It's a familiar backstory. And, and as I've been saying it, for those of you who've been around the last couple of weeks, you'll see it's not, it's not a dissimilar backstory to what we've had in Exodus 1 and 2 so far. 
Exodus 1 and 2 it is basically the backstory. It's the context for the story that is going to unfold over the next sort of 12 chapters of Exodus. That, that's what we've got. We've got the context. So chapter 1 introduces you to the villain of the story. You know, this is, this is the moment where, where Hades comes on, on screen and you're very, very clear from the beginning, okay, he's the bad guy. Chapter one is that. It's, it's Pharaoh. Pharaoh is that figure. Pharaoh also has an evil plan. His evil plan is to uh, oppress the Israelites, to use them as forced labor, to keep them weak by having all the baby children killed. You see, in, in chapter one... Pharaoh is set up not just as a, a bad person, not just as someone who's uh, kind of going to be opposed to God's people, but actually he's set up as the person who is anti-God. He is anti-God's intention for the world because what did God say at the beginning of Genesis? He said that we were to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. That's what human beings were meant to be doing. And Pharaoh... The, the Israelites are described as doing just that thing, and Pharaoh is described as opposing that thing. He wants to kill babies. He wants to stop the Israelites from multiplying and filling the earth. Pharaoh is, got, is set up as God's great enemy, opposed to God's purposes in the world and opposed to God's people. That's chapter one. You, you see the villain. God, God who brings life as opposed to Pharaoh who brings death. God who loves his people uh, as opposed to Pharaoh who hates God's people. And so you've got the villain at the start. You're introduced to him, chapter one. But then into this story, a baby is born. And you don't know, you don't know anything about this baby when he's born. There's no particular reason to think that this baby is going to gonna do anything amazing. But you instantly know, because he's introduced, this baby's going to be important. You just instantly know it, because otherwise they wouldn't be telling you about his birth. You instantly know this baby is going to be, is going to be a, a big deal in this story. And, and of course, this is a baby who Pharaoh is scared of because he's an Israelite baby boy. The very people that he was trying to kill. And dis- so Pharaoh wants him killed, but despite all the odds, despite the baby's apparent helplessness, this baby survives. But just like in the Hercules story, he survives, separated from his people, instead in Pharaoh's palace, right under the nose of the very person who wanted him killed. You see, chapter 2, the beginning, what we were looking at last week, this is, this is the, the, the moment where the baby is born. The baby who is born, who is tried to be killed, but who survives. And who even at this point in the story, you just know is going to be significant. You know the fact that he survived is going to come back to cost Pharaoh. So then in the passage that was read earlier, what we have is that next scene in the film. If you've ever, if you've ever seen Hercules or actually pretty much any film of the same type, this is what happens. You get the villain introduced. You get the, the baby being born. And then what do you get? You get fast forward a few years until they're grown up. Like that, and they actually start doing stuff. And that's what we've got here. We've got the kind of fast forward a few years. And now we're presented with Moses grown up. And and what you do in that first scene is you introduce people to the kind of person that this hero is. You just just tell a story of their life that lets you under the skin to actually understand a little bit about who that person is. And that's what we have here in 
um, chapter 2, verse 11 to 25. We get this introduction to Moses. Moses has grown up. This isn't going to be his great act of rescue. He's not instantly going to come on the scene and put everything right. This is going to be an introduction to what kind of person is Moses. And what we're going to see is we're going to see a number of themes introduced here that are going to kind of run through this story. So all I really want to do today is just point out a few things that we learn about Moses and about this story that are introduced here that are then going to be unpacked throughout the rest of this story. So you're you're going to get a snippet of this. You're going to get an introduction to this. But you're going to have to come back for the next, like, 10 weeks um, to, like, to get it all. So you're just going to have to keep coming. That's, unfortunately, the, the way it goes. You see, this is the equivalent scene of, in the Hercules movie, when, when Hercules goes to that, like, temple place. And he tries, you can see snippets, like, he's strong. He's, like, quite well, quite well meaning, but unfortunately, everything kind of goes a little bit wrong. Like, this is, this is a little bit like that scene. You're going to get some insights. Or it's like that scene where he rescues Meg for the first time. You're introduced to some key ideas of the story. Hercules is strong and fast and well-meaning and committed to rescuing. They're going to play themselves out in the rest of the story, but they are not the story themselves. So what do we see here about Moses? I'm going to, I'm going to start by introducing the first theme that is going to run through this entire story, and that is this theme. Moses versus Egypt. This story sets up the, sto- the, the kind of narrative that's going to follow this of this is going to be a story of Moses, this seemingly insignificant Hebrew man against Egypt, the great superpower of the time. Like this, this introduces you to the fact that that is the story that's going to follow. Because the first thing we see Moses doing when he grows up is killing an Egyptian. Like that's his first major act. He, he protects an Israelite by killing this Egyptian who is mistreating him. Now, that is a kind of surprising turn of events when you think about where Moses has come from, because Moses has been raised as an Egyptian, and he's enjoyed all the benefits that have come from being an Egyptian, and from being a privileged position, from being part of the royal household. And so you'd expect him, at the very least, to be sympathetic to the Egyptians. You'd expect him to, at the very least, have divided loyalty. And yet here, at the very start, it's clear, Moses views himself as an Israelite who is opposed to the oppression and violence of the Egyptians. Verse 11 is interesting. It reads like this. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out, and this is the bit that's interesting, to where his own people were. See, he instantly at the start, he says, the Israelites, the Hebrews, they are my own people. They're my people, not the Egyptians, the Israelites. They're my people. That's who I belong to. That's who I identify with. And that's picked up in the New Testament in Hebrews, where we we read that he refused to be known as Pharaoh's daughter, but instead chose to be ill-treated among God's people. Rather than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin, it says, he chose to be identified as one of God's people. And that's what we see him doing right there, verse 11, the first time we see him as a grown man. From this point on, this is going to be Moses' story. Moses is going to be an enemy to Egypt and a friend of God's people. 
what begins here continues throughout his life. But I just want us to pause for a minute and just think how different this story could have been. Uh, how differently this story could have gone. Because as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he could have had so much. He was in a privileged position. He had wealth and security and opportunities. He was comfortable and able to indulge whatever pleasures he desired. And he could have stayed there. He could have said, that's the life I want. Why would I give that up? I'm comfortable here. I'm safe here. I'm free here. I can do what I want here. He might have even said, look, look at the position I'm in. In this position, maybe I'll be able to make some changes to the way things are. Maybe I'll be able to influence things. It must have been tempting at some level for him just to stay there, comfortable, rich, and free. I mean, who wouldn't want that? Isn't that the life we all want? Comfortable, rich, free. Yet, when faced with the injustice and the oppression of the Egyptians, he chose to give that up. He decided that being one of God's people, that doing what God called him to do, was of greater value than anything Egypt could offer him. And so, he opposes Egypt and he defends God's people. Here's what I want you to think about for yourself. I wonder how your, how my, how our value system compares to that. How does what Moses value compare to what you value? Because the Bible tells us that our faith is more precious than gold. And that's a nice phrase, but I wonder if that's actually how we value it. Do we really believe that our faith is of greater value than being mortgage-free or winning the lottery? Or simply being financially secure? Like, well, how do we value those things? When faced with the same choice Moses faced with, the choice of wealth or, be, or identifying as one of God's people, which would you choose? Do you genuinely think that your faith is of greater value than gold? The Bible says that God's words are sweeter than honey. Moses believed that. But I wonder if we do. Do we really believe that what God says brings more joy than delicious food, than sexual experiences, than the many pleasures that surround us? You see, I'm, not, I'm definitely not saying that money is evil. I'm not saying that pleasures are wrong. But I am saying that here, Moses had a choice to make. Will he take wealth and pleasure and abandon God and his people? Or will he take the harder life? A life with less wealth. One where he doesn't get to pursue every pleasure he desires with God's people. What's he going to choose? And Moses is an extreme example of that choice. But I just want to be clear. You today and you tomorrow and you the day after have the same choice to make over and over again. It's the same choice before each one of us. If you're going to be one of God's people, you will have less money than you would if you weren't. Because, at its most basic level, you're going to give some of it away. Because that's what God's people have always done. You're going to use that money to love and serve other people and to love and serve God. If you're going to be one of God's people, you may even earn less money as you prioritize what God wants above the simple accumulation of wealth. 
let me, let me just spell this out as easily as I can. Following God will probably make you poorer. If it doesn't make you poorer, you're probably not doing it properly. Like, that, that's the reality of it. If you are going to be one of God's people, you are also going to deny yourself certain pleasures which you desire. Some of them you will refuse to indulge because God says they're sinful. He says you may want them, but they're bad for you, they're bad for others, and they're, they're bad for the world. There's some pleasures you will deny yourself for that reason. Some pleasures you will deny yourself, not because they're wrong, but because they get in the way of something which is more important. They're not sinful, they just distract you from the good work God calls you to do. This decision Moses makes here, right at the beginning of this section, shapes the whole of his life. This is, this is in some way the key decision of Moses' life. And that's why in Hebrews, this is what's picked up. Because this is the moment where he says, I'm going to turn my back on basically unlimited access to wealth and pleasure. And instead, I'm going to identify as one of God's people. and I'm going to take the life that that offers me. This decision makes Moses' life a whole lot harder. But it also enables him to do the great work that God is going to call him to do. So that's, that's the first thing we see introduced here. And you're going to see this running through the whole story. This is a story of Moses versus Egypt. This is a story of Moses going, I'm not going to, I'm going to turn my back on that life that could have been mine. And instead, I'm going to fight against that and fight for God's people. Moses versus Egypt, that's the first thing. The second theme is this. Moses is a rescuer. It's interesting that here at the start, we see that Moses has this strong desire for justice and to rescue those who are oppressed and ill-treated. That's what this, story, that's what this passage is all about, really. When he sees the Israelite being beaten by the Egyptian, he doesn't say, well, the Israelite probably deserved it. He doesn't say, that's bad, but there's nothing I can do about it. No, something in him drives him to want to act to protect the Israelite and to fight against the oppressor. And the reason you can see that that's a thing, that it's not just the fact that he was an Israelite that drove him there, is because he then goes on to do exactly the same thing when he's forced to flee Egypt. He immediately turns up somewhere else, and he's, as he's sat there thinking, what am I going to do now I'm in Midian? He, he goes to the rescue of some women who are there to get water. They want to get water for their flock. Some shepherds come and drive them away. Moses sees this. Uh, what does he do? Well, look at verse 17 with me. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. I, I, and I love, I love this phrase. Like, so it says, but Moses got up and came to their rescue. I just love, I love that phrase because I kind of, I've been trying to like picture it during this thing. Like I've got this vision of like, there's these women over here. Like I'm imagining the film. So you've got, you've got these women over here trying to get some water and some shepherds come to, to like drive them away. And Moses is like, I don't know, sat over here on a rock thinking about what he's going to do in Midian. And he sees this going on. And I'm just trying to work out what happened then. Like, did he just, like, stand up? And, like, the shepherds turned to look at him. And, like, was that enough? Did they go, wait a minute, he looks serious? Or was it like that scene in the film where people are like, who's going to stop us then? And then he, like, rolls up his sleeves and the pumping music starts going. And you have this, like, full-on martial art, like, scene going on there. I don't know. But, like, what happens is he sees this going on and he gets up. And he drives them away. He, like, he, he rescues these women. You see, you see that, back to the point, Moses clearly has a heart for oppressed people and a desire to rescue them. 
Like that's, if there's one thing that's clear from Moses from this passage is that when he sees people in trouble, when he sees strong people oppressing weak people, he has a desire to act and to bring rescue into that situation. And actually from this, it doesn't seem to matter necessarily whether they were Israelites or other people. He just, that's a thing that he cares about. Now that's been true of God's people throughout history. God tells his people to protect those who are vulnerable. So in the Old Testament, he says, when you've got foreigners in your land, you're to look after them, you're to treat them well, because they're vulnerable and they can be exploited just like the Israelites were in Egypt. As we read, carry on reading, we're told that we are to care for widows and orphans. That's because they were people without other people to look after them and care for them in that society. God's people are to be, those, uh, to be those whose instinct, when faced with the vulnerable and the marginalized, is to want to protect and rescue. It's that instinct, it's that desire to act to rescue the vulnerable, marginalized, oppressed of society. That's what led Christians to get involved in the abolition of the slave trade or the civil rights movement in, in the States or any number of injustices that we've seen throughout history. Here we're introduced to Moses and we see that his instinct is to fight against those who would use their power to oppress others and instead to act to rescue those who are mistreated. That's the kind of person Moses is. And as his life develops, he's going to find himself doing that, not simply for a slave being mistreated by an Egyptian or to some women being driven off by shepherds, but for all of God's people against none other than the Pharaoh, and all the might of Egypt. But what I think is interesting is how he reacts in these smaller examples, how he, how he reacts at these moments, that sets the scene that shapes him for the rest of his life. Sometimes we imagine that if I was faced with great injustices, if I was faced with a real battle I needed to fight, well, then I'd step up. You know, if there was something serious out there, if there, was a, if there was a pharaoh figure killing babies, well, then I'd step up, then I'd, then I'd oppose it. But here's what we see in Moses. Actually resisting evil, protecting the oppressed, resisting, um, resisting kind of the mistreatment of others, that's a way of life. It's not something reserved for great heroes or leaders to do on an epic scale. It's something we're called to do, whatever the scale we do it in the situations we face. And for some of us, that might be in some grand scale, but for most of us, it will be more like with a Hebrew being beaten by an Egyptian and, a, and some women at wells. For most of us, it will be refusing to stand by and watch as workers are exploited, as people are subjected to violence, as the strong deny the weak the things that they need. You see, the reason that Moses could fight against the oppression of Egypt on a grand scale was because he'd already done it in so many other situations. He'd already had that heart and been driven in that way. You see, our desire to rescue, our desire to protect, that's a good one. But there is something that Moses is going to have to learn in all of that. And it's something we have to learn as well. And that is ultimately that it's going to be God who's going to do the rescuing, not him. Because Moses' instinct to rescue and protect is a good one. But it's worth knowing, it doesn't go perfectly for him at this first stage. So he ends up killing an Egyptian, and then getting found out, and then having to flee. 
So, so Moses' actions don't leave the Israelites any better off. And now he's in exile. He's unable to know what's going on or to help them in any way. But at the end of this section, verse 23 down to 25, we, we see some hope. We see the hope because God suddenly enters this story. God has been basically absent from the first couple of chapters of Exodus. There's one comment about God being kind to the midwives, but apart from that, God hasn't really been doing anything in this story so far or been talked about as doing anything. But here, he hears the groans of the Israelites, he remembers his commitment to them, and he's concerned about them. You see, now Moses is in exile. What's the hope for the Israelites? Well, the hope is that God is aware and concerned and that he's going to get involved. Put, put as simply as possible, this is what we see at the end of this chapter. What Moses is unable to do, God is actually going to do through Moses. So we've been introduced to the key battle of this book. If you want to know what Exodus is going to be about, it's going to be about Moses versus the Egyptians. And we've been introduced to Moses as a rescuing figure. We're reminded that Moses versus Egypt will actually symbolize God versus Egypt, that Moses the rescuer will ultimately be God the rescuer. But I just want to talk about one final theme which is introduced here. And, and I just want to talk about that and then we'll, we'll call it a day. Uh, and that's this. Notice that the Israelites are quick to turn against Moses here. Moses protects an Israelite from the Egyptian, but when Moses, encourages, uh, when Moses comes and challenges them about fighting with each other, they quickly turn against him. They say, who made you ruler and judge over us? And that's interesting because that question is going to be on their lips for the rest of Moses' life. He's never going to be far away from the Israelites turning to him and saying, who made you ruler and judge over me? As Moses comes to the rescue of them, they will continually complain to him and about him. They will accuse him of making things worse. They will say numerous times, as they actually suggest here, that Moses simply wants them to die. They will say they were better off in Egypt, better under Pharaoh. It turns out there are multiple times when the Israelites just don't want to be saved. They don't want to be rescued. They don't want Moses and they don't want God. And this is where I wonder if this real life story of Exodus, this real life story of what God, God does, I wonder if this is where it slightly goes against the grain of a Hercules-type story or so many of those other stories that do a similar thing. Because in those stories, the battle is nearly always between evil overlords and a virtuous oppressed people. You know, that's the story. We've got these evil, powerful people who are oppressing these incredibly innocent and great uh, but weak people. It's a battle of good people versus bad people. But what's interesting here is this is the story of bad people and bad people. That's what the story is. It's not that the Israelites are just victims here. Yes, the Egyptians treat them badly and beat them, but they also treat each other badly and beat each other. God does not rescue the Israelites because they are so good. He rescues them because he has committed himself to them. That's what he says at the end of this chapter. Because he loves them. Because he wants to rescue them. What is true of the Israelites is true of every human being 
in the world. Let me just make this as personal as I can. What is true of these Israelites is true of every one of us in this room. And it's also true of every person that every one of us in this room knows. We are all like the Israelites because every single person is both a victim of sin and a sinner. Every person is a victim of sin and a sinner. We like to think of ourselves as victims. But we're not just victims. We're sinned against and we are oppressed. But let's be clear. These Israelites do not just need saving from the Egyptians. They need saving from themselves. And actually, that's really important. If there's one theme that is introduced here that is going to run and run and run, not just through the story of Exodus, but through the entire story of the Bible, it's this. It's that the Israelites, as much as they need saving from the Egyptians, as much as they need saving from powerful nations that will mistreat them, the primary people they need saving from are themselves. The same is true for us. We don't just need saving from other people. We need saving from ourselves. The history of the Israelites is going to look like this. God is going to save them from the Egyptians. Spoiler alert, that's how the story of Exodus goes. Okay, He's going to save them from the Egyptians. And then what's going to happen? He's going to spend the rest of history trying to save them from themselves. He's going to spend the rest of history trying to teach them this is how you actually live together. This is how you treat each other. This is how you relate to God. This is how you relate to the world. God rescues them from the Egyptians and then starts the much bigger task of how do I actually rescue you from yourselves? That's the problem. God can save the Israelites from the Egyptians, but how do you save people from themselves? Laws and customs will not do that. Now, God was clear. What was needed was new hearts. Salvation, which is a big biblical idea, does not just look like being saved from the evil of others, but also from the evil inside us. And so God promised that one day he would give us new hearts. He would so transform us that we'd be able to be the people he created us to be. But but how is that going to be achieved? Well, that's going to happen through a different rescuer. Moses is not going to achieve that. There's going to be a new rescuer, a better Moses. And this rescuer will fight against the evil which, got, which opposed God and his people. He's going to fight against it at the cross. He's going to defeat all the power of that evil, all of the pain and the death and the judgment that that evil could muster. He's going to defeat that. But this rescuer is also going to fight against the evil inside each one of us. Like Moses, this rescuer would turn his back on unimaginable wealth and pleasure to walk a much harder path. Like Moses, this rescuer would choose to identify himself with God's people. Like Moses, this rescuer would act kindly to women at wells and in fact to many people being oppressed and exploited. Like Moses, this rescuer would be opposed by the very people he came to rescue. But the victory this victor would win is going to be so much more complete. Not only will Jesus win our freedom, he will also change our hearts. He will give us his spirit and that spirit will transform us. Ultimately, the gospel, the good news 
that the Bible is trying to tell us and communicate to us is the good news of forgiveness and transformation for bad people who need rescuing from the evil around them and from the evil inside them. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what the Israelites needed. That's what we need. That's what our great rescuer Jesus offers. I, I, don't, know, I don't know what you all believe here today. I don't know what you think the gospel is. I don't know where you find hope and comfort in the gospel, if you're even sure what it is. But here's, here's what I want to tell you about Christianity. Christianity is hope for bad people who live in a bad world. Until you see yourself like that, until you recognize I am a person who lives in a bad world and needs rescue from much of the evil in the world, but I'm also a person who is himself broken and bad and need rescuing from that, Christianity will hold no appeal and no hope for you. Until you go, actually, yes, I need saving from so much evil that's in this world, but I also need saving from so much evil that's in myself, then Christianity will mean nothing to you. And the rescue that Jesus offers will not be a rescue that you want. Here's three key themes introduced in this section. Moses versus Egypt, God's people rather than wealth and pleasure. Moses as rescuer, protecting the oppressed, recognizing that God is ultimately the great rescuer. Israel's rejection of Moses. Just being saved from the evil which oppresses us will not be enough. We also need saving from ourselves. You see, it's as we understand that, that's why the story of Exodus is so powerful, as we understand those ideas, then we're able to understand the rescue that we need, the rescue that you need. And then we get to see the rescuer that we have in Jesus and the kind of people he calls us to be. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing as we finish. Father God, I know how easy it is to, um, to think that the only thing that we need rescuing from is from evil outside of us. It's from the things other people do to us. It's from the things that happen that are outside our control. But Lord God, I thank you that your rescue is so much more than that that you do promise us a rescue from that, that you do promise us that one day you will make this whole world new. You will deal with all the evil and all the brokenness. But Lord God, I thank you that you also give us hope that you will deal with the brokenness and evil inside each one of us. Look, and I pray for those of us today who basically view ourselves as good people, who think I basically live a good life and I don't need Jesus. Lord God, I pray you to open our eyes to all those ways we fail to be the people you created us to be. And I pray that you would help us to see our need of rescue, not just from the evil outside of us, but from the evil inside of us. And Lord God, I pray that as we see that, I pray that you would stir in us a heart that longs to work to rescue and protect those who are oppressed in this world. And I pray that you would grow in us a commitment to following you and identifying ourselves as one of your people rather than simply living for the wealth and pleasure that's on offer all around us in so many different ways. Lord God, we believe that you speak through your word and so Lord God, I pray that for each one of us, whatever words you have to say to us this afternoon, you would speak clearly and I pray that you would continue to transform us through your word. Amen.